Welcome to season four. Welcome to season four of this most unbelievable podcast. We open season four with a confession. We don't have a plan. We have no idea what's going to show up. Our podcast and every season is our place of invention. It's where we go to think and learn with each other and to open dialogue with our listeners. We look forward to another season of brainstorming and surrendering to what unfolds. Thanks, y'all. Now on with the show. Uh, good afternoon, Sherry Spiegel. Hello. Let, well, let me rephrase. Let me restart that. Good afternoon, Dr. Sherry Spiegel. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. I wanted to specifically mention that in light of the kerfuffle in the, uh, where was the Wall, Wall Street, Street Journal. Journal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I appreciate that, though I will say that I've been thinking since that story started unfolding, I'm thinking that, you know, it, it used to drive me crazy how much Paul refers to me as Dr. Doctor, Spiegel. Yeah. It, it, even in hindsight, it's like, why do I keep doing that? That's curious. You know. Yeah. It is curious. Except, like, I realized, you know, not all, uh, you know, not all dudes out there are comfortable throwing around a woman's honorific quite like you are, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, yes. Thank you, Dr. Oh, Fisher. you're welcome. You're welcome. Of course. Um, and those, uh, those doctors, honorific, honorifics don't come lightly or unearned, you know, um, having been two people who have gone through the process of what it takes to get those, it's you know, true. the, the absurdity, yeah, the absurdity of the allegation, you know, is, is, is just shocking. How long was your dissertation? Page wise? Mm-hmm. 200, give or take? Hmm. I probably don't even want to ask, where, where did yours come in? No. I mean, around the same, probably. I think it was 250. Yeah, I was going to say my, my advisor preferred brevity, you know. Yeah. A little bit. But um, yeah, uh, so, you know, we, we talk about this every once in a while. You know, we both do have these graduate degrees. Um, mine has never been questioned. Hmm. Mine has never been questioned, but that's not true you know, for everyone. But this what this speaks to a little bit to me is that uh, you have engaged in a series of studies and a series of practices, which has made you very good at what you do. That's what it seems to signify. I mean, it's such an interesting thing to fight for or to, to request the acknowledgement of your graduate degrees. Um, there was once this student who always called me uh, Ms. Spiegel. Um, and I, for a while, kept correcting him. Mm. Um, and he would say things to me like, whatever, it's the same. And so, um, I know exactly what his actual name is, but I'll, let's say his name was Kyle. And, uh, so at some point I decided that I was going to start calling him a different name, but one that's mm. like, kind of similar begins with the same letter right i don't know what another name that starts with i didn't think this out well Kevin, Kevin? trying to protect the innocent Keith? Ke what 
Kevin Keith. Kevin, something? sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so student's name is Kyle. I decide to start calling him Kevin, and he's like, "That's not my name." And I was like, "Right, just like Ms. Spiegel isn't mine." Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And um, so, so the rest of the semester, I called him Kevin to make a point. Yeah. Did he come around before the end of the? No. No. Lord. Yeah. But I mean that's that's the thing is um you know, I think I think in the end like he may have shifted to something like professor blah blah blah. Um and at the end of the day, it doesn't um it doesn't change who I am in my classroom, what my students call me. Um and this semester I actually actively just started signing my name Sherry, like whatever, that's my name. Yeah, right. Um but there is a bigger social thing that is at play in the ways that I feel like I have had to fight um, to be seen as a doctor in a way that I don't think, um, I don't think everyone experiences it the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very messy landscape. It is a messy landscape. And just a couple of days ago when I was thinking through this, um, because it's all over, you know, Mm -hmm. social and everything, um, is that I think in the next semester I might go back to, you know, asking students to refer to me as Dr. Fitzgerald, you know, because I've been telling for years, just call me Paul, just call me Paul, just call me Paul. And they they gleefully do if they're comfortable with it. Um, And then I, I, I was sort of unpacking for myself why that is. And my own thought led me to um, my own contemplation led me to um, when, when all of my, uh, when all of my female colleagues, when all the, the colleagues I have, that have a doctorate um, are referred to as doctor and given the respect, then you can go back to calling me Paul, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that that is part of the challenge sometimes for, uh, I mean, I can't speak for all of our female colleagues with doctorates, um, but it has been pointed out to me at times, well, this person over here lets us call yeah. him this. Um, and yeah, it's like, of course, because I'm just going to use you as an example now. Probably not um, an incorrect one in most, in most cases. You know? Right. Like, like, I mean, yeah, go ahead. You know, whether students call you Paul or Dr. Fitzgerald or even Mr. Fitzgerald, right? Uh, The fact of the matter is, like, you're still the guy that can walk into a potluck and be invited to take food home, wherein I am invited to help labor. It's just, you know, and and so I do think, and it's not as though you asked for that, right? But I do think being a person who exhibits the world in your body versus mine, that is the challenging thing perhaps for you is to figure out how do you make choices, not because you can, but choices that help those who can't. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And what can I do about this? Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what is, what do my actions look like that, that, that speak to that and reinforce that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, can I call you Sherry? You may. I'm curious, Sherry. Um, uh, so what? Uh, 
What did you do during, what, what did you do to earn that degree? Let, let, let's let our listeners learn a little bit about you as a professional, you know, writing uh, person, oh. you know, so where'd I you do? go? What'd you study? What'd you do? What's your degree in? What's the, what are the dates? Which one? <laughs> so, yeah. So our, our, my colleague, Dr. Spiegel comes to us on this podcast. Welcome, Dr. Spiegel. It's wonderful to have you as a guest. Okay. Uh, I, I think I, I can remember a lot of them, right? Uh, I know a hokey at, a hokey at heart, but that's not the PhD, correct? Right. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I have two degrees from Virginia Tech, and I will always say that my degrees at Tech made me who I am. Mm-hmm. And my degrees at Virginia Tech also taught me what I loved most in the world, which is words and and, and the power that comes with language. So I have a master's degree that really is a generalist degree from Virginia Tech. Um, but my independent study project, um, that I did at Virginia Tech, uh, was a project about rhetoric and visual rhetoric in particular. Um, so visual rhetoric is the idea that we can make arguments through visuals just as well as we can with language. Mm -hmm. Um, so that degree, as a result of that degree, I ended up teaching first year composition for the first time. Um, basically because I wanted to have a GTA position. Right. Um, a, what, what, a what position? A, a graduate teaching assistant. Okay. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that's weird about me is that I got my bachelor's in like three and a half years and my master's in a year and a half because I did like this combined BAMA yeah, thing. Right. Right. Um, and the graduate director at the time that I applied for the program told me I would never get to teach if I chose this path. Mm -hmm. And anytime someone says uh, to then Sherry Lemire or, and now Sherry Spiegel, um, you can't do a thing. It's like the thing she must do. Um, so I didn't necessarily even want to teach college composition, but as soon as someone told me I never could, I was like, Oh, Oh, it's on. Yeah. Um, right. So I managed to harness a couple of amazing women at Virginia Tech to fight for me. Uh, and I found myself in a college composition classroom for the first time. And it changed everything about how I understood the world and what I wanted to do. So after that, I was so like, just shook by what happened when I taught college composition for the first time. That... um when I left tech, I just took a couple of years and just wanted to teach writing to make sure it was really the thing for me. Um, and so I put off going back uh, and getting my doctorate immediately because I wanted to make sure I knew what I was going to study. When I eventually went back, um, I went back to get my PhD because I had gotten the full-time job at our current employer. And... In order to move up in the ranks, I was hired as an instructor at the lowest possible salary. Right. And in order to get right. promoted, I would need more graduate classes and eventually a PhD. So I went back and I got the degree because I wanted to keep teaching college composition and I wanted to get mm -hmm. really good at it. But my dissertation is the weirdest thing that I think I've ever done. I theorized about rhetoric 
Um, and I basically developed a working theory of what's called guerrilla rhetoric, bringing together all of the loves of my life at that point um, mm. and all of the big questions of my life to develop a working theory of guerrilla rhetoric. I've talked too much. This is too much, Sherry. That's a whole bunch of stuff. Very cool. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that something happened to you in a, in a class, your first class that you taught in composition. Yeah. Uh, that shook that shook you. Was it the experience of the class and everything there that did it? Or was it a, a, like a, a thing happened or? Uh, um. <laughs> well, part of it was I had, I had always been shy and I had never talked in front of people. Hmm. Um, you can talk to graduate professors who had me in my master's program and, uh, one of them, Sheila Carter Todd, who was my composition pedagogy teacher, like she will tell you, I did not talk in her class. Like she couldn't pay me to talk. Right. Right. Um, so one of the things that happened when I got in the classroom is I learned that I love talking in front of a crowd. (laughs) Um, and I was and I was good at it. Yeah. Um, right. So that was part of it was right. just realizing. Um, and next thing I knew, like, um, because of like after I had gotten this GTA position, somehow I wound up like within a couple of months, um, having to give like this short talk to the new batch of grad students like six months later. And so yeah. I found myself talking in front of an auditorium of people. Like 400 people for the first time in my life. And like, as soon as I took the stage, like I realized, oh, oh, this is it. Like, this ain't so bad. Yeah, this ain't so bad. Yeah, like talking in front of like six fellow grad students made me want to throw up. But talking in front of a room of hundreds, beautiful. So that was part of it. The other part of it was just realizing um, how many people had been taught that they didn't have something worth saying that they couldn't write. Um, Especially at Virginia Tech, so many students who were like engineering majors who thought I'm an engineering major. I don't need writing. I don't want to be good at it. It's not a skill even worth pursuing Mm -hmm. for, for an engineer. Right. Right. So part of it was just like what happened when people started to come face to face with the reality that everything we do is rhetorical. Everything we do is based on how do we communicate with other human beings? Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, that's interesting. So you, you're, you're, you're teaching this class and you end up with uh, a science kid or an engineering kid. And, and, you know, we still have this situation today where, you know, we teach at a large you know, DC Metro Community College, and we have um, science students in there with humanities students in there with social science students, whatever, all taking a, a composition class, all thinking, all, all approaching the written word in composition um, from a perspective of varied degrees of 
usefulness or criticality for their career path. Why should I have to take a composition class? And and of what good, of what good is it? And you know, I I hate to say that you know if I if I go back to my own 17, 18 year old self, I may have been among them asking that question. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a science guy. Why do I need to know how to write? Um, and and noticing that from a under-informed point of view that, you know, science is about writing what you do with your experience. That's not like writing writing. That's not like, you know, storytelling. That's not like novel writing or anything like that. But, you know, having more experience with the written word now, um, there's always a component of rhetoric to everything you write, no matter how you write it almost, right? Um, Yeah, well, and it's not just if you write it. It's if you speak it. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, It all is. It all is. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I think everything's rhetorical, like um, even things that we don't think of as rhetorical. It's like um, I always tell my students, um, you know, you've been a rhetorical master since the day you were born. Yeah, Um, sure. The first rhetorical Uh, accomplishment that you make is to convince someone to feed you. Right. And how do you do it? You scream your head off. Yeah. Right. Um, Crying um, is our first rhetorical strategy. Hello, I, I have needs. And an effective one. Yeah. And an effective one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we hate that. Right. And it's the, it's the same rhetorical strategy of your alarm clock. Yeah. You know, your alarm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like you hire this thing that's going to drive you crazy until you change your behavior. That's rhetoric. Yeah. That's rhetoric, yeah, and and change your behavior, you yeah. will. Um, very cool. So, anyone uh, who has participated in one of our workshops, mm-hmm. uh, and we've done several. So, what are we on now? Our third, third, third or fourth? So we we started fifth. with the yeah. So yeah. So we had working toward a fifth, the fifth one. People don't quite know about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we started with uh, a summer workshop on uh, the book, The Artist's Way. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one we did uh, was a me and white supremacy book group. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never pitched or sold as a writing. It was a book group, right? And, you know, we, we read the book and got together and, and had a chat. Yeah. Um, we're doing uh, the 40 days of the holiday mm-hmm. workshop right now. And so if, you, if you've if you poked around at the descriptions of those workshops that we offer, or if you've participated in one, and especially if you have participated in one, thank you. Mm-hmm. Just wait, there's more. Um, and even with the fourth one that's on deck that uh, we can find on the webpage, there is not an insignificant uh, amount of um, introspection here, which people are invited to explore through the written word. That's true. The 40-day guide comes with a workbook. It does. You know, the the writer, um, the... Uh, the Artist's Way book, of course, you know, that's where the, the whole notion of morning pages sort of comes from. Am I right, Sherry? It does. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. We So we started, I think the Artist's Way has shaped a lot of what we do today and what I think we see on the horizon for us together, in part because um, I think as we walked through that class, I was able to see a lot of um the potential of 
what was in that book. And I, I think you mm-hmm. were too. Yeah, right. And we were told that by some of the participants of yeah the realized potential and the un- unrealized potential. And right. we were reminded of that frequently. Yeah. But I think we also ran into a lot of limitations within the book. Um, and I think there there are limitations and, and there's a few. But one of the things that I think is so tricky for me is that that book speaks to something that I think is a fundamental truth and also a really tricky thing. And that is, um, I think writing and language is the most powerful and depending on how you use it, dangerous thing in the world. Right. Right. And so I think what Julia Cameron tries to do with the artist way is to tap into that. And to say, write three pages every day because she knows that the power of language, like when you commit words to page every day, three pages of it, something is going to happen because writing is transformative and like using language purposefully and intentionally um, is so incredibly powerful. Um, this is why, like, the sophists were so dangerous, because they just walked around mm-hmm. and taught people how to use language to, like, change the world. Because, you right. know, and like, right. oh, who can we let write? Like, the, the the history of writing instruction is so fraught with, like, oh, I don't know, should we let those people over there learn how to write? What would they do if we let them in and we taught them all the cool secret handshakes? Right. Um. So... I think that book speaks to the fact that I think language is powerful and language can transform us. I think the limitation of the book is that I don't know that Julia Cameron has studied writing to know all the reasons why three pages handwritten every day in the morning might not work for all writers. Yeah, she she puts really strict um, bounds on Mm -hmm. that. You know, and if if she was asked, um, can I type? She'd say no. Yeah, uh, it's like it has to be <laughs> has to be handwritten. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I appreciate the appreciation for handwritten stuff. I don't know if I would do the same thing as putting those bounds on it if I if I was was writing the book myself. But um, I do have a fondness for getting out a pen and, and writing, and I did do my morning pages for um, for that workshop, and I still oftentimes do with a. You know, I, I go through a ritualized process of it. I pick the pen that I'm going to use, and um, it's it's usually a pretty nice pen. But I I, I pick the cheapest notebook around, mm-hmm. you know. So that's you know that I could buy you know thirty notebooks with the cost of the pen that I use, which is interesting, you know, because well, but don't of, you have a bunch of beautiful empty notebooks around you? I do. Yeah, that's exactly what I've learned. It's like so if I have these beautiful notebooks that have like super high quality paper that I spend a lot of money on, it's like I'm not going to write in them, <laughs> you know, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is like, what could I possibly have to say in this uh, in this act of just writing three pages of whatever in the morning that is worth the the paper that it's written on, literally. Yeah. You know, and and who is it for? Um, if it was something that I was writing for someone else, I'm sure I would use higher quality paper and a better notebook. It's like, well, if I'm just kind of doing a, a morning page, see what see what happens when I do this. I don't need fancy paper for that. Right? What I do need for that is a respectful pen, mm. uh, <laughs> because this is not a, a big ballpoint that I got at the at the at, at the local drugstore that that I'm using here, and 
what I found that if that's the case, I'll get frustrated and I don't like the pen. It's like, ah, you know, and it, it, it just brings up more stuff that I don't want to bother with than, than, than it does. So proper pen selection is important to me when writing when writing morning pages for some reason, but I don't know why, you know, but I think I got the why, why do I have so many empty, beautiful notebooks? I think I got that worked out. Well, I don't think, um, I think there's a couple of really interesting things in that. So one, I don't think you're the only adult human in the world who has a whole bunch of beautiful, empty notebooks. Yeah. Right. And I think, um, I just was, I just started reading, um, uh, Jen Sincero's badass habits. Uh-huh. And you don't get four pages in before she's like, for this work, you should go buy yourself a new notebook and dedicate it only to this work. And I think like mm. half the self-help books out there in the world are telling you this kind of thing, like, go get a notebook, right? right? And I really think that they are all funded by big notebook, right? Like, Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. It's like they're on the table. Right, like Moleskin gave them a cut. like a cut. a cut, right? Be- because so people go out and they buy these big notebooks and like, God, how many books are there out there about like how to bullet journal and, you know, how to do this kind of journaling? And so I think that there is like this thing in us where we, lots of us want to be the kind of people who fill notebooks. But when we sit down with the notebook, a lot of people don't know what to do with it. And my husband used to make fun of me, like, like basically, I am banned from the journal section of the Barnes and Noble, right? Right, because right. all I'm going to do is buy a notebook and then think it's too beautiful to ruin with my ugly ideas, right? Like, so I think that there's this weird self judgment um, of we can see a notebook, an empty notebook, as perfect potential and we are afraid of taking our broken selves to the page yeah there's more of myself and who i want to be and it being empty than there is anything that i could do to put in it would only take away yeah it's perfect you know potential uh, yeah it's it's the potential is <laughs> whether this is true or not, right? Obviously, probably not, right? But the, the potential of it is easier to live with than the truth of it sometimes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there is, I mean, and there's so much that we could unpack about uh, the tyranny of the blanket, you know, the blank page and what it does to right. people. And right. so I think right. that's part of what's really interesting about, you know, your, your relationship with writing. But I think... Um, I bought my first fountain pen because of you. Yeah. Um, because little did I know you had a bunch of empty notebooks hanging around when I did it. But um, <laughs> that, I think, that that pen does not touch those fancy pages. Yeah, yeah oh, you can't have both pages. a fancy pen and a fa- fancy notebook. The no, world that's would just too much pressure. That's but I think you know, you said something to me like about respecting yourself, right? Enough to like. Or I don't even remember. But there was something about, like, the idea of, like, respecting yourself enough to write with a quality. To write with a good pen. Yeah. Um, And it's like reflecting back on, like, don't you feel like you have anything worth saying that, you know, that asks for a nicer pen? You know? It's like Yeah. But even for me, like, there was a lot of hangups in that. Like, why would I use this beautiful pen to write misspelled words? Right? Like... I still, like, I had to work through that. Um, But now I'm looking at my fountain pen collection over here, and I have five fountain pens at this point. 
Yeah. Um, and I've realized there's a fountain highlighter out there in the world that I need. Yeah, that blew my mind when you said that. I have no idea what that yeah, is. Yeah, we need one, Paul. So cool. Well, we need two. We you we can't do. have mine. Yeah, right. Um, right, right. But I think I think that there's something to figuring out for me, something about the fountain pen combined with um, cheap, low-stakes paper. Yeah. I can get stuff done. Um, but I think that there's probably a lot of people who that doesn't work for. Um so one of the things that I think is true is that people benefit from applying or trying a bunch of diff- a number of different strategies to try to figure out um, what do they need to do to help themselves become uh, comfortable and sort of engaged with themselves so that they can explore with writing. Right. And it's not unlike, right. I think... Um, maybe what happens when you, when you begin meditation, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you sit? Like, you know, do you use yeah. cushions? Which kind of yeah. cushion, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, so when you sit down on... I was going to say, please don't actually ask me that question. Oh, I see where this is going, but please You don't. literally <laughs> just made me explain, like, all of, like, my dissertation. So the least we can yeah, do is... Right. All right. Right, right, right. So, Paul, you choose to practice on some cushions i do how'd you get to the cushion oh boy how did i get to the cushion like the first time or why cushions why don't you sit on a bed why don't you sit in a chair that's a good point yeah okay yeah i get that that's a good point this is the softer Um, question and then we're gonna go yeah the other one the the other, other one right um uh the uh Why a cushion? Because I remember the first time that I actually properly did say uh, something to myself like, okay, I'm going to meditate now. And <laughs> purposefully and for, its, and for the probably the most righteous intention that I've I finally settled on on why and what the purpose was behind it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and. I mean, I, I, we we can sort of mix the the first question and the second one on on the, the deeper part of it because they're they're intertwined, and I don't I don't, I don't know if they're particularly separable. Mm-hmm. Um, the conditions of my life were was such at the time that I knew that uh, I hit the bottom of something, mm-hmm. and the way that I was approaching, the way that I was. The way I, the way that I was approaching the way that I was approaching my life. I mean, no, it's like really that's what I mean to say. Um, could not clearly was not hopefully there are alternatives yeah you know hopefully there's an alternative and i've heard about this thing uh that supposedly does some people some good you know this meditation kind of thing mm-hmm. this is back in the late this isn't back in the mid late 90s so it's not like i can download headspace or go to the local barnes and noble and get you know a a book, you know, I mean, these are books that at the time are in the esoteric sections mm-hmm. of the family-run bookstore, not the 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 big chain stuff. Um, and uh, we we didn't just download something on you. I mean, if you wanted a meditation practice, you had to work for right. it because information wasn't easy to find. There was no googling to do. Right. There was no yahooing to do. Well, um, you probably had to walk into some like hippie, new agey kind of 
Yeah, some, you know, maybe if you were in one of the four places in the United States at the time that had like a Zen center or something, mm-hmm. or because you know, nobody knew somebody that did it. It was just sort of dumb luck if you did. Um, and, but it was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And um, because I know that the way that I've been approaching my life is cannot be, it can't be the way. There's got to be another way. And I don't know what that way is, but I've heard, I've, let, let's check this thing out. Yeah. Um, and so I was in my mom, my old bedroom from when I was growing mm-hmm. up, right, in St. Louis, uh, in the old house that I grew up in. And I grabbed a cushion from, like, the couch. So it's not like I had a organic buckwheat-filled Zafu or something like that around that it is. But you do have one now. I do have one now, yeah. Um, because I still I, I still practice on a cushion, yeah. you know. Um, it's it's by far my pr- preference. Um so I grabbed some cushion, you know, and I probably sat on it and said, wow, that's too low. So I got another one and sat on it. It's like, well, if I'm going to sit up this high, I might as well get on a chair. Who knows? I don't even remember that conversation that got, sort of got me in into that that space of that. But it's like, no, it, this is done on a cushion, so I will get a cushion. And maybe I saw a picture somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I But a I cushion got seemed necessary. A cushion seemed necessary. So I got out. Uh, uh, I found, I don't know if it was mine, because I don't know if this was something that I ever actually had. Maybe it was a boombox or um, a Sony Discman or something like that. Oh, and I, I put on uh, Steve Roach's Structure Some Silence, and it came out right around that time, and I had a copy of it on CD. I have no idea why. You know, it's like, why? I mean, if you listen, if you know Steve Roach, if you listen to Steve Roach, uh, it's it's meditation friendly, I guess. I mean... Uh, now I don't, I don't, I don't meditate to anything, you know, it's like, it's, um, but at the time it's like, well, it seems atmospheric. Why not? You can't hurt, you know? And if nothing else, it helped me get on the cushion. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, I put it on and put the headphones on and I sat Mm -hmm. and I think the cushion was a sign that I was taking it seriously. Yeah, it's not unlike it's like, buying a new notebook. Yeah, it's like I'm gonna take I'm gonna take this one seriously. It's like I'm actually if I'm gonna do it, I'm actually gonna do it. I'm not gonna screw around mm-hmm. with it and sit on some chair, which is totally fine and totally acceptable. I do it myself. You know, I do it. You know, over the summer, like the couch is my <laughs> oftentimes where I end up. You know, uh, sitting mm-hmm. uh, in meditation and. Um, but yeah, it's like I'm going to take it seriously, and if I'm going to do it seriously, then I'm going to put the the resources behind it to, to do so. And now that resources means you know have a cushion and whatever. Um, back then, the resources well, let me I got to find a cushion somewhere because uh, there's some on the couch. Uh, Mom, I'm taking the cushion, you know, and you sort of yell across because my if she walks in and sees me sitting on a cushion, you know, listening to Steve Roach just sort of sitting there like a doofus. I mean, my God, what would my mother think? It's like, why are you sitting on the couch cushions? You're a grown man. What's wrong with you? It's like, why don't you sit on the couch if you want to sit on the couch? You know, <laughs> so she would have questions that <laughs> perhaps could disrupt the process a little. But um, that's why, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why. And the cushion has been my preferred uh, apparatus, for lack of a better word, to sit on ever since. And I, I vacillate a little bit about on uh, what the details of that are, if it's, you know, one of the Tibetan seat square ones, or if it's a buckwheat fold Zafu or kind of whatever I sort of, whether I'm sitting on one or two. You know, I was in a meditation workshop last summer 
um, at IMS and, and Barry insight meditation society and uh the guy you know you have these ideas you know these notions that these people are going to have perfect posture and they're going to be you know they're not going to budge for 45 minutes and for the most part they have very good posture and they don't move a lot they don't squirmy when they're up there i mean these people have been practicing a long time and one of the guys who was leading this workshop you know had his had his zafu and he picked it up and he scrunched it around he flipped it on on his side and put it under his butt and he sit it sitting on it sideways and it's like that is the most beautiful thing you know not because he he's he's not putting all of this reverence into it that makes it so inaccessible it's like cushion yeah i sit on a cushion all the time squished up and sideways and <laughs> but he made it his own right like he, yeah he made it his own yeah. and it's like that's how he sits that's his that's his thing yeah. you know um, that's how he his preference yeah. but there's certainly something there's a quality to it in my own mind whether i engineer that or not about um the ritual aspect of taking something seriously mm-hmm. and using the proper instruments for doing so and, and that might be why i use a fountain pen when i write yeah you know, because writing for me is not about the paper. It's about the pen, mm-hmm. you know, and and what the expression on the paper, the recipient of that is going to be, is going to be um, something that goes through that pen. Yeah. And so it, if I'm going to do this honestly and seriously and intentionally for a directive end, mm-hmm. you know, I guess I should have a good pen. Yeah. You know, just for the same reason, I guess I should have an actual cushion. Right. And I will say, that's just me. There's nothing wrong with the chair. There's nothing wrong with a big pen from, you know, CVS down the street. There's nothing wrong with an expensive notebook. There's nothing wrong with a cheap one. There's nothing wrong with st- standing is, medita- is great meditation. Yeah. Walking meditations are fantastic. So we want to get away from there. If you don't have a cushion, you can't do it, which is, I rail against that all the time. Right. Well, I mean, I think the key thing in it is is realizing that 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 you have to bring your actual self to whatever it is you're doing, right? Be it, you know, a, a kind of writing practice or be it a uh-huh. meditation practice. You have to bring your actual self to the practice. Right. Um, right. And I like to like As you this, are, as you are. Yeah, exactly yeah, as, as you are, are yeah. today, right? And I like to liken this to um, how we understand other species to work, right? Like, so you've got a cat and you're like, I love this cat so much. I'm going to buy the cat the most beautiful bed in the world. That does not mean the bed is going to get used by the cat. The cat is going to sleep in a box. In the box. In the, yeah, yeah, maybe the box the bed came in, right? Because Yeah, right. Because there are certain features of the box that the cat cannot articulate to you, but it demonstrates a preference, a thing that works better for it. Um, and I think we're not all that different, but we don't take the time, you know, this is, it's a second arrow thing. It's a should thing. We think I should write with a beautiful pen in a perfect notebook. I should, you know, meditate six inches above the cushion that I levitate over. Right. Right. Like we have these ideas about what real contemplative practices should look like. And they don't match the human that is doing them all the time. Right. You know, so part of what, like, I meditate now on cushions that I bought, right? Um, After meditating on cushions that you had in, you know, at school. And I bought uh, cushions that probably you, Paul, would not have purchased 
Um, they're white and teal. They're very in the color scheme. Yeah. Um, and mine has racing stripes on it, and like flames that go down the side. <laughs> and everything, right? so, <laughs> just kidding. They don't. Yeah, no. right? Um. Yeah. So you know, mine are very. Uh, I think it's actually like I think it's a coral reef. Actually, yeah, I think it's the coral. Yeah, yeah. like um, you've seen them. But the other thing that I I have is I have a sandbag. That yeah, right. matches the color, by the way, because color is important to me. Yeah. Um, and so I need all three things to match very well before I can sit down upon them. Um, and I need that sandbag in my lap because it grounds me. And I have a really, really hard time um, feeling grounded. Um, and uh-huh. so when I try to meditate without that sandbag um, alone... I find it incredibly difficult um, to meet myself on the cushion. But there's something about that sandbag that puts me exactly where I need to be. Right. right? But you you also have an identical sandbag, and I bet you don't meditate do. with it in your lap. I don't often. Yeah, no. I don't often. Yeah, because we both come to the practice with our yeah, with who different. we actually are. Yeah, different stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, the first thing that usually goes through me when I sit on a cushion is, <laughs> here I am again, right? And, but in, not in a bad way, not in a good way, just in, a, in or both in a good way, you know, in a bad mm-hmm. way. Not a bad way, but I'm just like, ah, here we are again, right? Yeah. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what's going with curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that's the same way that when I write my morning pages, when I do morning pages, it's the same way I greet right. the page. Right. right like yeah here we go again and that was my yeah that's that was my next question actually yeah. um and uh so we we've talked about the equipment of, of this a little bit and why we use the equipment we do some things that we've seen with the cheap notebook was the expensive notebook right and um we you and i i think both know intimately the fruits that can be gained from both a writing practice and a meditation practice. Should the two be um, combined? Can the two be combined? Can a writing practice be a, a contemplative practice? And can you, for a contemplative practice, look for that in a writing practice? Softball question, Sherry. Yeah, well, you already know the answer to this question, Paul. So I don't have to answer it here. No. um, Yeah, so I think that this is one of the things that... um, Boy, how do I want to answer this question? Um, I think it's one of the things that you and I are coming upon in some really interesting ways is that contemplative composing is a concept that I don't think really exists out there in the world. Like, um, I think that that people talk about writing as a potentially contemplative practice. Um, But I think one of the things that you and I are starting to think about is what happens when we purposefully bring these two things together and we invite people to cultivate a contemplative writing practice in it in ways that are similar to how one might contemplate uh, developing a meditation practice 
or a yoga practice or, um, and I think that people understand that these things are linked, right? Like the number of, uh, yoga retreats that might invite people to keep a journal, right? The number of other, like, right. You know, if you look within like the world of Christianity, that the ways in which there are people who will invite people to have a prayer journal, right? We seem to understand that there is potential in bringing writing to a contemplative practice. But again, how people can come to that has to start, I think, not with go buy a notebook, it's going to be great. But just like with meditation, right? Like how lost did you feel just sitting on the cushion in your, you know, your mother's last, house? Last week? Last last week? You well, know. yeah, there's that. <laughs> but, last week or 20 years ago? Because, you know, it's it's not all that different a lot of times, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Meditation's hard. But Writing is hard. Now, probably when you come to the cushion, right, you have an arsenal of things that you can bring to the cushion with you. Sure. Right? Sure undoubtedly yeah, yeah of course yeah. right like so sometimes maybe you come to it as like i'm gonna do a body scan right like um i'm just gonna focus on my breath today maybe it's gonna be a meta practice right like there's this check down you can do so that you, although you know that the work is gonna look similar you get to approach the practice whoever you are in that moment and so you're going to choose tools to get you through it. Right. I think people would benefit from similar kinds of um, check downs for writing practices where Ooh. they understand that they can come to the page with an intention toward contemplative work, understanding that the task might need to be more guided for them than three pages handwritten they might need other tools yeah for me it comes to a screeching halt when i say about what yeah what am i writing about what am i writing about and why do i want to write in the first place what am i accomplishing yeah because you're not you're not nobody's i mean nobody's gonna read it it's specifically right does does she Julia Cameron, she specifically, like, this is not something that somebody's going to read. For, the, for hers, like, for the first yeah. six weeks, she doesn't even want you to read it. Yeah, she doesn't want, yeah, right. She doesn't so what's the point of writing if no one's going to read it? Isn't that counter? Yeah. In, intuitive to the to the process. So why bother then? Yeah. Why bother? Yeah, so um, I think part of part of what's interesting about thinking about something like contemplative composing is first understanding... Why do we, why do we want to meet ourselves on the page? Like, what are we going to get from that? Um, and then figuring out how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, both I think you and I have experienced over the last year or so. Um, I know I have being a, a meditator. Uh, for 20 years who has who has who has come to writing mm-hmm. and you as a writer who has come to meditation who has come to meditation yeah um it's like we're, we're hitting 
kind of similar similar stuff, but coming at it from from a different from very different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but are they are they? I think maybe different different way of practice, different way of being, um, different approach. I don't know. You know. Um, well, all part all of it's part of like figuring out this thing called life and how to human, right? Yeah. But it is. Um, I think that that's one of the things that's exciting when you and I do talk about contemplative composing together is exactly that, like, um, and maybe even more about it, right? So I think, yeah, you're a meditator coming to writing. I'm a writer coming to meditation. I think also um, you're a scientist coming to rhetoric. Yeah, right. And I'm a rhetorician dabbling with some science right and so there's i've seen you i've seen you use evidence on occasion yeah yeah you collect data yeah um so i think that there's this weird way in which sometimes it feels like we're we're we started off on a opposite journeys but we're finding ourselves in similar yeah in a space in between right Right. Um, and in both cases, though, if the question is why do it, um, why sit on a ki- why why sit on a cushion and pay attention to your breath? Why do, why sit on a cushion and you know check in with yourself? Why why sit on a cushion or stand or walk and take some moments just to see how you're breathing? Why do that? That's you know in many ways can be the similar question, uh, the similar answer to the question: Why should I write words on a page? If nobody is going to read them, if, if I don't need to write for myself, because that's not what I I can just think stuff. Why do I actually need to go through the process of writing it down? And I think there is for me an answer to both of those. That is the same thing. That is, uh, it it starts funny, but it goes somewhere. So stay with Mm me. The answer is, I don't know, but something is going to happen. Yes. And in that something, I will learn something about myself. Yes. Yeah. That is, I think, equally true to both of those. That is true. What is true for the cushion is true for the pen. I need to write that down. That is a fantastic phrase. It, what is true for the <laughs> What a, Aren't you glad we decided to record this? That's yeah, why we yeah, record what's true for things, the cushion right? is true for the pen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in, in, I have no idea what's going to happen, but something interesting is going to happen that will tell me about myself. Yeah. And if your objective is to learn about yourself, both of those, I think, will will lead you to a, a place, right? And then it, it requires more than that, though. I mean, there's, there's a second level of that is pay attention to, to how you feel when you're writing. And... Um, another part of it which was a show sto- which was a, so- a showstopper for me for the longest time um writing is part of it i mean sitting down with a with a pen with a blank piece of paper and thinking about it isn't the work right any more any more than buying a cushion and looking at it but never actually sitting on it isn't isn't the work um so if if you or our listener or somebody out there who might be interested in just like dabbling at this notion of what 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 is writing for its own contemplative sake look like? So I got a pen or a pencil or whatever, and I got some paper in front of me. Um, how do I start? Mm-hmm. How do I start? Is that your question for me? Yeah. 
What, what advice would Dr. Sherry Spiegel, writing professional, give to somebody out there who looks at a blank page and doesn't know what to do? Well, I think that the first part of the answer to that question is to really look at what writing is um, and to be suspicious of how we talk about writing in our culture. So, you know, we started this conversation with my own journey with rhetoric, right? And I wrote a dissertation mm -hmm. that's about guerrilla rhetoric. And one of the things that happens when you look at guerrilla rhetoric is this uncomfortable realization that language and violence are intimately connected in ways right. that are really, really problematic. And so... Right. Um, in their book, um, The Metaphors We Live by George Lakoff and uh, I think it's, I'm forgetting first names. I think it's Mark Johnson. Um, hmm. They talk about the way in which like so much of our language is like argument. The idea of communication is war. We think of language as war. And there is a whole, whole, whole lot of violence inflicted through writing and rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things that I think a person has to do is come to understand that for a lot of their life, they may have used writing in that way as a tool for war. Um, mm. And that it, they may have had violence inflicted upon them as a result of how we use language and how we use writing. So a lot of people have a special kind of way of hating themselves that is wrapped mm -hmm. up in who they were told they were as a result of their relationship with the page. So the mm. first part of that journey begins with understanding how writing actually works in our culture and understanding that there is a difference between writing to communicate and writing to learn. And that when you come to the page for yourself, you are not necessarily coming um or you will do well to not come to the page uh in a defensive stance um that you don't have to protect yourself from a critic right like you get to come to the page in a place of surrender and so that's the first part, is understanding um, exactly what you tell yourself about who you are when you're holding a pen in your hand mm -hmm. or when you're sitting in front of a keyboard. So I think that's the first part, is like unpacking um, if you want to use writing as a, as a tool to learn about yourself, first learn about who you believe yourself to be when you're holding a pen, you know? And for the longest time, I didn't write things down um, because I was terrified. Mm. Like if someone found um, this archive of just how utterly stupid I really am, right? Like they would see the fact that I can't spell words, right? Um, you know, I'm 
unsufferably whiny. Like, you know, like, I mean, just uh, all the worst parts of me, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the, when you meet yourself on the page, the version of you that you hate the most might show up. Right. What do you do? Right. Um, so I think. And oftentimes it does. Yeah. I have to be honest. Yeah. It's like, oftentimes it does. Yeah. Um, because that's the part of you that most needs to be heard. Yeah. And looked at and seen. Um, so I think. Um, I think what I would advise people to do is to, to come to the page understanding um, first their relationship with writing and mm -hmm. um, the way that they may see themselves as a result of their relationship with writing. And then also knowing that like writing is a powerful to tool through which you come face to face with all parts of yourself. Right. That's a long answer to your question. That's a good, it's a good answer to my question, right? It's a very good answer. Um, uh, I used to, before I uh, was a dabbler in the professional written word, uh, ew, that's even freaky to say. Um, I used to, I used to have this phrase, you know, that I use, and it may be total BS, I don't even know. Um, but, you know, you put a blank piece of paper down in front of somebody in a pen and it's like, what is this paper for? And it's like, it's it's a mirror that you can use to look at yourself. Who who are you right now, right? Because um, that's what's going to come out, you know. And um, you can write so much before you know trying to hide that before it starts coming out. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a little reconciliation in that page sometimes if you're using it for that purpose. If you're using it for that purpose, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think our relationship to writing. I mean, no matter who. I haven't met anyone, probably, who doesn't have a comp like a complicated relationship with writing. Yeah, I mean, I would say mine is. Yeah, mine is. I've noticed and <laughs> complex in that sometimes I'll, I'll I'll do three blogs in a week and then you know you won't hear from me for six months and right. It's like, but I, the other thing that's true, comes, I don't know, you know, right, is that uh, since we started the forty day guide. Yeah. You and I have written a yeah, combined ninety over ninety pages. Yeah, it's it's coming out pretty pretty good. Yeah, it's coming out pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and we've we've sort of settled into our own approach on on how to collaborate on that. Yeah, um, which is uh, I think a rare <laughs> rare you know for two people to develop that early on in in writing collaborative projects. I think so. I mean, I know nothing about whether that's true. Well, but it's like, wow. Gotta be honest, Paul. You're not the here. first person I've written with. I think you are the first person I've written with. Really? Interesting. You know, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, like, seriously. You know, like. Oh. Um, yeah, I do think that there is something really unique in the way we compose together. Um. And I'm looking forward to the ways in which we will continue to find that out. Right. Um, but it's hard to, f it's hard to find, I think, you know, writing is such an exposing thing, right? Like showing. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Part of it is even just the fact that like, I do not really draft is. in front of other people. And I also do not allow people to see my thoughts half-baked. 
Um, So one of the things that makes me incredibly obnoxious as a collaborator is that I will refuse to show people what I'm working on while I'm working on it. I will refuse to let other people see me typing while I'm in the middle of typing. I will talk about my ideas without ever writing anything down or committing it to memory in any kind of way. Right. Um, And so getting me to actually show my work to another human um, is like a feat of strength. It's very, very, very difficult. Um, But I think you and I, through maybe because we... This is this podcast is a kind of that contemplative composing in a way. Yeah, it really is. Right? Like, yeah, it really is. Um, so we try out a lot of half-baked ideas here. So one of the things that I've noticed about writing with you is that I haven't been hiding my drafts from you. I actually let you see my thinking when it's half-baked. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think I've been able to see some of the potential of coming to the page in exactly the state that I am instead of trying to make myself into um, the chameleon, like the, the version of me that I want to present to the world first. Right, right, right. And interestingly, if anybody, well, I, I'll go back and say something first. If you If you take one of our workshops that we offer you will not have to go out and buy a notebook because we provide one we provide one for you right a downloadable you know pdf of a workbook that has pre-engineered prompts and everything for you to work through on on, in that way we would never be so audacious as to hand you a blank page and say all right get to work um uh, however, there is value in that too, but uh, that's not necessarily our way of, of doing it. Yeah, well, and I think, right. so one of the things that's worked for us, I think, in this first, this, the workshop we're currently working through, that we've written 93 pages for, yeah. is that we are giving people a workbook. Actually, the 93 pages doesn't even account for the workbook, sir. But right. Anyway, yes, cool. so that's I a, just realized yeah. that and was like, oh my goodness, Paul, we have like over a hundred pages of stuff. Well, yeah, I knocked out a few, I knocked out at least a couple of pages. Oh boy, we're too, over a hundred so. pages at this point. But, you know, we offer the um, workbook to people. We also invite them to start with a blank page and, or customize it in their own ways. And so one of our amazing workshop participants, um, is like cutting these things up and putting them into yeah. her own pre-made yeah. thing, right? That's awesome. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So I think that that's, that's like the beauty of this, right? Is how people decide to make it their own. It's right. it's the it's the crunched up sideways cushion. Yeah. yeah. There was right. another thing you were going to say. Well, I was. And well, what I was going to say is, you know, should, should someone look at those and, and, you know, take one of the workshops and look at the materials or whatever it is, there's there a lot of aspects of comp- composition in that. Um, uh, there, there's also a lot of aspects of mindfulness in it. Yeah. And, and, and meditation in it. And I would warn, and maybe that's too strong of a word, I would um, encourage <laughs> the participant, the listener, whoever it might be, the observer, to appreciate that not all of the meditation mindfulness stuff that's in there is generated by me and not all of the writing prompts is generated by Dr. Sherry Spiegel, right? So we, we do actually contribute both to both in that as a, as a meditator coming to writing and as a writer coming to meditation, Yeah, you know, we do dabble in the, 
the little nooks on the puzzle pieces as they sort of fit to fit together in that way and for me that's been one of the most like astonishing things sometimes is occasionally something you say about writing that i realize of course except i never would have gotten to it because i come from um the lens of my field right like right, sometimes right. when you're an, an ex- supposed expert in something you you forget like the the other ways to come to it right it really is right. the cushion on its side right um so yeah i think i think one of the things that's most exciting about this is for me um is the vast opportunity to keep learning myself about the thing that I think I'm an expert on. Right. Right. Like, because, um, by going through this with someone who had, who brings different lenses to it, like we see things we never saw before. Right. And it's awesome. Um, so yeah. Um, I also think it's really interesting. We don't, the, Holiday Survival Workshop has basically become a crash course in contemplative practice. Yeah. It is a writing-driven right. experience. And yeah. I think it is a perfect example of what happens when you and I do a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems to be very... Yeah. So I think what's exciting, so we're going to do that, or we are doing that. Uh, and then in January, uh, at the end of January... We're going to move on to the Brahma Viharas. Yep. Um, which, you know, is one of these things where I'm like, hold on to your hat, Sherry. You have no idea <laughs> anything about these things, except except they've been part of... They're not new to me, but I've never right. studied them in this way. Right. And that's it. It's like they're not new things. They're old things. Right. They're ancient um, that things. just keep coming up. They just keep coming up. Yeah. You know? um, so let's do it properly. Yeah. So we're going to come to those from the lens of meditation and contemplative practice. We're also going to come to them with intentional writing exercises. Yeah. It's going to be a workbook. Yeah. Um, and then apparently... After we finish that workshop, we're going to bring people through a new workshop called Contemplative Composing. Can't wait for that. That is going to take some of this stuff that we're starting to see and theorize and allow it to be made known. Like that to, to make it to articulate the ways that people could approach a contemplative composing practice. Right. Um, right. Um, and I may have seen a little bit of a peek under the hood on that uh, at this point. Right. On how that looks like it's going to start and it's going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to, can't wait to get started on that too. And um, that one has not yet uh, been released in the description of it or anything like that. Right. Cause Sherry's terrified that it even yeah, exists. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> almost as terrified as Paul is. Paul is of of the Brahma Vihara Divine Abodes workshop, but um, that one is uh, listed on the on the page. So where is that, Sherry? It's in the shared spaces. I think the easiest way think, to get to it is through the shop. Yeah. So if you go to the go to the website, uh, you know it by now. The www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. Um, there's a link on there called the shop. And if you head over there, you can you can see it. And if you click on that, you can navigate to the dis- full a full description page. So that's a, a small description in there, but you can navigate to the full page. And uh, if you wanted to join in, right, a, a modest fee associated with this one. Uh, we do put some time and energy yeah. and some resources into it. Uh, um, we've already sold one fifth of the seats to that class. Yeah, it's limited limited in the number of people that can join in. It's capped at ten, mm-hmm. right? So um, if somebody wants in on that. Don't hesitate. Um, and if you think that you might want to uh, tell somebody else about it who you think might be interested, we would appreciate those eyes on it um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, coming soon to a to a website near you, uh, contemplative component. Am I saying it right? Is it contemplative or contemplative? I don't know. Guess we're gonna cool. find out. We'll find out. We'll find out. So. Um, all these things can be yours. Indeed. All these things can be yours. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Sherry. Cool. So how are you doing today? You doing all right? I'm doing great, Paul. How cool. are you? Cool. I'm well, thank you. It snowed today. It was the first snow of the season, wasn't it, today? It was. Around 10 o'clock, the snow started. It started as rain, and then it turned to sleet, and then it turned to snow, and then it turned to big flakes, and then it turned back into sleet, and then it turned back into rain. In the rain, and now I think it's done. You know, it's just kind of messy out. So. Our regular listeners are thinking, ah, there's Paul with the weather. Yeah, the daily weather report wouldn't be the podcast without Indeed. it. Indeed, yeah. Ah, so. but you know, this was this has been a very interesting journey. Um, cool. And I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to participating in that uh, as well. Hey, you know what else? What else? This is season four. First episode of season four. It's going to be great. Welcome, folks. It's going to be great. Um, and I hope to, I hope you enjoyed this one. Yeah. So uh, you can find Dr. Sherry Spiegel information on the website. You can find her on the internets and places. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know. You teach classes every things, once in a while funny, at a local community college. Yeah, it's funny yeah. you mention the fact that you can find me on the internet and things. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately um, is that my Instagram username mm-hmm. is and has always been, and it used to be my Twitter handle as well, uh, Writer's Block. Yeah. And it taps into uh, this epically old narrative I have about myself as a writer mm. that I am perpetually in a state of writer's block. Um, and so one of the things that has been kicking around inside of me is, uh, this, this itch to change that username into something mm. more related to contemplative composing. Maybe a little more kind to yourself. Maybe, right? maybe. Um, and so I do think it's kind of funny that right now your Instagram username is the four Brahma of Or the Brahma of Horus, <laughs> Uh, so maybe I'll just change mine to contemplative composing and we'll just see what yeah, happens. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll make it That's contemplative funny. composer. 
Very cool. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Very cool. Cool. I could change mine to composing contemplator. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and not a wrong thing that would be. So awesome. Thank you, Dr. Sherry Spiegel. Thank um, you, Dr. So Paul Fitzgerald. What, thank you. Uh, what we've learned is if you want to learn how to become a good and effective writer, uh, just go get a PhD. Yeah, that's all you need. No problem, right? Um, uh, get started. Take a shot. See how it goes if you're thinking about it and if, you, if you're getting curious. And if you have any questions about it, you can always hit us up on the socials or you can send us an email uh, if you want to pick Sherry's brain because I will say you will not find a, a better writing teacher, instructor, guide, or mentor than, than she. So yeah. um, go ahead and yeah, do what you want to do. So um, we'll see people on the flip. Alrighty. Cool. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks, Paul. Bye, y'all. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. Paul and Sherry have a Paul podcast. Paul podcast, yes. 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 Cool.